Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to a special podcast-only edition of PA Books. I'm Phil Beckman. PA Books is a weekly program featuring interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania history, sports, politics, culture, and more. To learn more, visit PCNTV.com. In this episode, I'm joined by James Overmeyer. He is the author of Come Posey of the Homestead Grays, a biography of the Negro League's owner and Hall of Famer. Jim, thanks for being with me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. Now, in 2006, you were part of a special committee that was set up to review uh, African-American figures who had been in baseball before uh, Major League Baseball integrated. One of the figures that your committee selected for a Hall of Fame admittance was Cumberland Posey, Jr. What was significant about him? Well, to back up just a little, um, pre-integration black players uh, started to be admitted to the Hall of Fame in the early 70s after frankly, having to wait quite a while for recognition. And it was a slow process. Uh, There were nine in the 70s. It it sort of dribbled on. And in 2006, the Hall of Fame decided to sort of shoot the works, I guess you could say. They assembled a a committee of 12 of us and uh, who had been busy researching or whatever and teaching about the black leagues. And there was a backlog of good candidates, and there were probably, we elected uh, 17 people, and I would say roughly, you know, it's sort of arguable, but about half of them were like utter shoe-ins, like they, what are, why have these guys been waiting so long? And Posey was one of them. He was, uh, he was one of the premier owners of, um, Negro League teams, his team, the Homestead Grays, which were obviously based in his hometown of Homestead, won nine consecutive uh, Negro National League pennants in the 30s and 40s. He was an officer uh, most of his career in the league. He was a league officer and one of the leading advocates for black baseball. So that's uh, that's why Posey's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, basically. Now, his, his name is Cumberland Posey Jr. That implies that there was a senior there somewhere. So who, who was his father? Cumberland Posey Sr. and his wife, his first wife, Anna, who was uh, Jr.'s mother. Well, I, I don't believe they have any particular fame outside of Pittsburgh, but the black community... Uh, The history of the black community of Pittsburgh is full of them. Posey was uh, a riverboat man, and he worked as a deckhand, and he got very interested, and he had a lot of, had a real mechanical bent. He got interested in how these boats ran. He became an engineer, and then he became an actual riverboat captain. Of course, the riverboats were, were just at the dawn of the railroad age, and the riverboats were key to the the steel industry in Pittsburgh, they would haul in the raw materials, the ore, the, the coal, the coke, and all of that. And so he's, then he started to build the boats, and he built about 40 
and he became an officer, a sort of vertical integration, as economists call it. He became an officer of a company and part owner of a company. They owned their own coal mines. They mined their own coal. They delivered it on their own boats to the mills and made a lot of money. So he was um, he was one of the most well-off African-American members in in uh, Pittsburgh society. His wife Anna had been a school teacher when they met. She then uh, she had three three kids in addition to a brother and a sister for Cumberland Jr. And she didn't teach anymore, but she became a society educational society leader in the Pittsburgh black community. She's one of the founders of the Aurora Reading Club, a women's reading club, which I believe is still active today. It was when I wrote the book and it hasn't been all that long ago. So they had a lot of, um, they had a lot of things going for them. And it's interesting that uh, Cumberland Jr. seems to have of, uh, taken on the best attributes of his parents. He was a very hard-headed businessman like his father, but he was educated himself, and he was in favor of education. He was a longtime member of the Homestead School Board, for example. So he's kind of, his parents contributed a lot to his personality and his traits. It's more so than you might ordinarily find if you're tracing the lineage of some public person. So Cumberland Posey Jr., uh, did he play baseball as well as uh, own a team? He played baseball. He was a, a three-sport athlete at Homestead High, baseball, basketball, and football. He played baseball. Um, he played it in college. He then played um, amateur. He started playing amateur ball for various teams uh, around the Pittsburgh area. But he sort of settled on the Homestead Grays, which at that time were an amateur team composed of African-American players. The team started to get popular. Sandlot, Sandlot Ball, as the Pittsburgh Daily Newspapers called it at that time, was, which was all amateur and semi-professional ball, was very popular in Pittsburgh, as it was in a lot of other big cities. And the Grays got to be very good. And... They were run by um, their ma- their field manager and their owner were both devout Christians, and they didn't want to play on Sunday. Well, Sunday was the day, as you can imagine, with five-and-a-half-day work weeks in the mills and whatever. Sunday was the day your team could actually make some money. <laughs> so they were encouraged to step aside. Posey uh, took over as the field manager and started to build the Grays into a pretty well-known local phenomenon. And they made some money, sort of past the hat, semi-professional. You'd, you'd collect money from the people coming in, and you'd split it up among the players on both teams. And then he he's a good businessman. He started to grow the team. And they'd, they'd go out to play the good white teams in the suburbs and uh, – all these suburbs are now, of course, part of Pittsburgh, but they were suburbs then. You had to take a trolley car to get there or pile into an auto, a couple of automobiles and drive over to the next, to the next town. But um, they became popular, and then he 
branched out. Pretty soon they're playing in Wheeling, West Virginia and Morgantown and place over to the east in Sharon, Pennsylvania, which was a real hotbed of amateur ball and semi-professional ball because the Sunday, the ban on Sunday baseball doesn't seem to have been in, enforced in, in Sharon, Pennsylvania. So everybody played there on Sunday and made a lot of money, relatively speaking. So by now, now we're, we're in the early 20s and he is playing for the team. He's the regular left fielder. He's pretty good. He's he's. You read the stories. He's an excellent fielder. He had a lot of speed. Of course, he was a star basketball player too. He had a lot of foot speed. He was an okay hitter, not great. He was he was. He sort of reached the top of his performance level, but he's the owner of the team. Well, he could have kept himself in the lineup forever, but now he's going out. A, past the Pittsburgh area and recruiting good black players from other who had played in, in the Negro leagues who had played in a top flight professional ball. And he started replacing the local heroes with guys who were better. Well, he's an honest guy. One of the people he replaced was himself. So after 1921, his playing career is over. But at, at that point, he started to build a real, powerhouse baseball team so i don't think it bothered him all that much he also played sports in college including basketball he played for penn state for a while what, what was his career like there he went to his college career is very interesting uh he went to penn state after graduating from homestead high and he played on the varsity there in fact they penn state believes he is or honors him as their first african-american varsity athlete he doesn't seem to have hit the books too much. And in the middle of his sophomore year, he left college. And if you parse the things that were written, it looks like he flunked out. So he came back to Pittsburgh. He came back to Homestead. He coached the Homestead High School basketball team for a, for a season. Then he enrolled at the University of Pittsburgh and didn't stay there long. And years afterwards, he said that he was racially discriminated against and not allowed to play on the pit varsity. So that was that. And then by the time he's about 25 years old, he shows up. He had an excellent career at Duquesne. And Duquesne now honors him as its first African-American athlete. However, he doesn't appear to have actually ever attended classes there. And he played under an assumed, a, a thin cover assumed name called himself Charles Cumbert. This was not apparently so unusual in those days. There's a, there's, um, a biography of uh, Art Rooney, the founder of the Steelers, where the whole section is devoted to how Rooney and other excellent athletes would basically pay, play pickup ball for money for colleges. The NCAA wasn't the, wasn't the enforcement uh, arm that it is today. Apparently, this happened a lot. So Posey played three seasons of uh, very excellent varsity basketball and a couple seasons of middling uh, baseball for Duquesne. And then I guess we can't say he graduated, but he left. <laughs> And that's uh, that's his college career. More 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 sports, more time on the on the field and in the gym than in the classroom, apparently. 
Now, you mentioned Art Rooney. Uh, he would go on to a pretty illustrious sports career himself. What, what type of relationship did Cumberland Posey have with him? A very close one. They were both they were both at Duquesne. Well, Rooney was was actually a student at the Duquesne Prep School. Um, but they got to know each other very well, and there were a lot of differences. I mean, one was white and one was black, obviously. Um, but they had a lot of things in common. They were they were very interested in becoming sports entrepreneurs, and they both did really well, obviously. Rooney founded the Steelers, and Posey's in the Baseball Hall of Fame for founding and running the Grays. And they, they had a really close relationship. Um, in fact, Posey's, Rooney apparently financially, okay, I'm sorry, got a little jumbled here. Black baseball finances were sometimes very shaky. And uh, you sort of went from season to season until the leagues really got strong in the late 30s and early 40s. Rooney's uh, pretty, it's pretty clear that he would uh, start out the gray season by giving Posey a loan to, for example, take the team to Hot Springs, Arkansas for spring training or something like that. And um, unclear if those loans ever got repaid. Rooney was a real close friend of Posey. Posey was a real close friend of Rooney. They had a real symbiotic relationship, even though Posey played football, but never went very far as a football player. Rooney played baseball, but never went very far as a baseball player. So they split off into their major sports, but they had a real close relationship uh, for many years. And it very much supported uh, the Grays, particularly during the early years of the Depression when they were, like a lot of other businesses, were in financial difficulties. Can you talk a little bit about the the kind of landscape of baseball at that time. Uh, there were a lot of semi-pro teams. Uh, it was a segregated time, so teams were black or teams were white. Uh, what, what would baseball have looked like in the Pittsburgh area at that time? Well, you had the Pirates, and they played all the time, and they were at the top of the sports page. Um, outlying, uh, there were some minor leagues. Um, trying to think, there was... There was a Pennsylvania League, oh gosh, had 10 teams in Beaver Falls, I think, and Jeanette. Without the book in front of me, it's hard to remember, but uh, there was some minor league ball in the area, but there was just a ton of semi-professional ball, and it was occupied or peopled, I guess you could say, by players who had had a shot at the majors, maybe some former major league players who'd had a cup of coffee, as they say, played a little bit of time and and been cut loose, or guys who'd played minor league ball or former high school stars, or in the case of the black players who couldn't get into white ball or white professional ball, the best black players in town or in the region. There was... um, and so Pittsburgh Baseball Association, they were they were organized and uh, there were tournaments and competition was sort of separated out. The top teams played each other and they didn't mess around with the lower level teams. They played each other and uh, 
you could pick up the sports pages of the Post Gazette or the the Post and at the Dime or the Pittsburgh Press, and there'd be uh, on the weekends there'd be semi-pro baseball stories, complete with stories, box scores, the works, all over the sports pages. A lot of people went to the games. Uh, black, there were some black teams. There were probably at the most of a half a dozen decent black teams in in Pittsburgh, uh, which the Grays were by far the best and the grays everybody wanted the grays got so good that the white teams all wanted to play them there was no discrimination i mean you didn't have mixed yeah there were some i won't say there were never any mixed teams but there weren't many and the top teams were not a mixed race but the, the black teams and the white teams always played each other the grays were very popular because people would come to see them and attendance would go up uh Posey, always the sharp, hard-edged businessman, was known to demand a larger share. The visiting team is supposed to get the lesser share of the percentage of the gate because the home team's got to pay for the umpires and the staff at the field and everything. Posey would generally demand the, the larger share of the gate and get it because the home team, the white home team would know well, I'm giving away a lot of money to him, but on the other hand, I'm going to make twice as much money today as I would if his team wasn't here. So the Grays were the stars of the Pittsburgh semi-pro world, I guess you could say, which lasted, which is very strong. The Depression the depression hurt it badly. It started to come back. Then the, then the World War II took away a lot of the best players in the semi-pro world and in Pittsburgh and a lot of other places was over. But in the early decades of the 20th century, it was a powerful uh, part of the local sports scene. Now, we're used to thinking of baseball and professional sports generally as being uh, where teams are members of leagues. And there were African-American leagues in the 1920s, but the Grays were an independent team. What did that mean for them? Well, the Grays were in a well. There were two or three issues. The Grays were in an, an interesting situation geographically. The the first Negro leagues were strongly organized in the Midwest around Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit, and the Eastern leagues were in the East. Not much, nothing much west of Philadelphia. So Posey held out the promise, which was often made in reality, say, look, you Eastern teams, you're going to want to travel to the West to play the Western teams once in a while, stop off in Pittsburgh and play us at Forbes Field. He had an excellent relationship with the Dreyfus family, by the way, and then he rented uh, he rented Forbes Field for their best, the Pirates Field for their best games. And he said to the teams in the West, well, if you're going to come East and play in Philadelphia and New York or whatever, stop off here and play me, or play the Grays, and that happened a lot. He also, um, there was not the overall uh, league leadership and controls in the Negro Leagues that you might have wanted, and players jumped contracts a lot. They would sign with the team, and then they'd be lured away for better salary by someone else. Well, Posey was one of the chief lures, raiders they were called, and he 
he stayed out of the leagues for the longest time because he was copying players <laughs> from other teams, better players, growing the grades at, at other teams' expense, frankly. He's not the only person to do this, but he was really good at it. And, of course, it could work the other way, but he'd say – he was quoted publicly and saying, hey, look, we pay – we pay our players well, and we pay them on time when their paychecks are due. And you can come and you can try to raid the grades if you want, but no one will leave. And no one important hardly ever did until the depths of the Depression when he ran into financial difficulties. So Posey stayed out of the leagues so, so he could uh, offer a stopover point to both the Eastern and Western teams, and he stayed out of the leagues. So he could take their players. Now you mentioned he the... was admired but not beloved by his fellow owners. Let's put it that way. Uh, you mentioned in the book that his strategy was to play any team that was willing to play. Uh, I guess as yes. an independent team, you have to you have to be able to play all comers, right? He would play anyone, anytime, anywhere. Uh, they, they're area of influence, I guess you could say, stretched as far west as Cleveland, and Massillon, Ohio, Denison, Ohio. Uh, they were constantly in, in Wheeling and Morgantown, West Virginia, and they would, you know, they'd, then they'd, they'd go as far east as, um, well, Sharon is not so far east, but they'd go farther to the mid to middle of Pennsylvania, play, they played in, um, Altoona a lot. They're very popular there. So they and they would um, they had touring two or three touring cars, which would hold all the players. The teams really uh, the black teams really had more than maybe twelve to fifteen players, and a very small support staff. The managers are usually playing managers, cutting the support staff even more. So they'd pile in these two or three touring cars and take off and they'd, they'd hit the road and uh, go and go and go play here, play there, play two games in a day, sometimes in different places, you know, go someplace, play a double header is one thing, but playing, playing a, a late morning game in one town and then a late afternoon game in another town on the same day wasn't beyond the realm of, uh, of possibility for the Grays. They probably played, Oh, 175 games a year at their top level. Some some players remember 200. They may be right, but I can't find I can't find that many in the old newspapers. Although some small towns, they, the game accounts may have been lost to history. They played a lot of games anyway. Was the team profitable? It was um, until around 1932. We don't have any finance, surviving financial records, but Posey, we know we know what Posey thought and said a lot, by the way, because in addition to all the other things he did, he wrote a sports column for the Pittsburgh Courier, the Black Weekly in, uh, in Pittsburgh. And he said more than once, the Grays team payroll increased every year from the early 20s until the early 30s, which is to say, if he's paying out that money, then he's clearly taking in enough 
to be able to do it, which is which is how they maintained in an in an area in an era of sort of unlimited uh, free agency where players could jump teams without any real repercussions. Which is how he kept his team together. He paid he paid them more than others, and he paid them on time, which I'm sorry to say was not always the case with some of the struggling Negro League teams. So yes, he made money. We don't know how much. They mention uh, in the book that. Uh, as a manager, Posey was known to pull the team off the field in the middle of the game to protest an umpiring call, and that does seem to be a, a regular occurrence. He would do that, um, and it would probably cost him money when he did it. I guess he he was a, he was a hard nosed guy. He would he would uh, he had an absolute rule against his players fighting fist fighting. Don't get any fights. If you get in a fight on the field with an umpire or another player, you're going to get fined or you're going to get suspended. But when he was in uniform, he would ride the umpires. He would argue. And as a last resort, if he felt his team was really being disadvantaged by an ump, he might pull them off the field, which is one thing to do around in a sandlot game, so to speak, around Pittsburgh. He actually did it in a few Negro League games, too. <laughs> he had a temper, and he didn't mind showing it on occasion. He pulled his team off the field in the Bronx one time, playing the Lincoln Giants with 15,000, reported 15,000 people in the seats, and he, they folded the game and left late, late in the game over an argument with the ump. So that's Posey for you. <laughs> He's a little... His life is a little hypocritical if you take all the pieces, all the blocks of his life and reassemble them. Here's a guy who won't let his players fight, but he'll make a real spectacle of himself otherwise if he feels he's been screwed by the ump. <laughs> now you quote uh, Ira Lewis from the Pittsburgh Courier. He writes that Posey does little developing of young talent nowadays, depending on finished players with a national reputation. Was that yes. part of his strategy? Yes, that's that's at the point where he replaced a lot of the the locally well-known guys who who often had day jobs and just not only were they not really quite good enough, but they also were not really ready to commit fully to a life of baseball. Yes, uh he stopped looking for local talent unless it was really good, like Josh Gibson, the Hall of Fame catcher that he found in, in lower-level semi-pro ball. Yeah, he stopped looking for local talent and started hiring these guys he could afford to hire who'd been in the black big leagues. And, of course, you know, as I say, one of the people he replaced was himself, but he clearly was his Ira was right. He clearly was his strategy, which didn't go over that well, because I think that Lewis and a lot of the local baseball aficionados didn't quite get it. How come you're not, how come, you know, we're not uh, showcasing these young guys and Posey's already, he's all, he's a step ahead of them. He's thinking that's because, uh, you know, in a few years, we're not going to be playing semi pro teams here. We're going to be in Philadelphia, New York, Chicago. We're going to be playing, you know, high level Negro league schedule. But I don't think I don't think the local followers of baseball quite got what he was up to. But they did, of course, eventually, because he did it. 
Now, in the late 1920s, the economy around Pittsburgh started to decline a little bit. Uh, what was happening, and how did that affect baseball? Well, in general, um, we think about 1929 as the year of the big crash, but a lot of the, a lot of the start of the depression was caused by industry was just producing too much cars, refrigerators, big big expensive items that they weren't selling, and so industry the first the, the beginning of the financial slump was actually cutbacks in 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 industry, and of course. What do you build a lot of those big high-end stuff, uh, things out of? You build them out of steel. Well, the steel business started to cut back. And, you know, a ripple effect. Most of these semi-pro teams were either named after companies, sponsored directly by companies, or got contributions from companies, and the money stopped coming in, and the teams started to dwindle, which is also another good reason for the Grays then to become a regional and then a well, I guess you could say national. I mean, it wasn't there wasn't any major major league baseball in any uh, in any of any colored players past St. Louis in those days. So, so the, the Grays became a regional power and then a national power, and they left the Pittsburgh Sandlots behind. But the Pittsburgh Sandlot baseball was dying out anyway, economic for economic reasons. Um, as the, the Grays became a better team and they would come into town and uh, as they were beating a lot of the local teams, uh, how did that affect some of the attendance or some of the money they were making as they were traveling around? Well, Posey said it didn't. Other people said, well, you know, they're now, they're now beating us so badly. Most of the time, there was if you, if you schedule a good team, you, you schedule more than one game because you wanted bragging rights. Ideally, you wanted three because somebody would win at least two of them and be the and get the bragging rights for the series. If you couldn't get three, you'd at least want two. And you know, some of the reporters or columnists were saying, hey, you know, they're, they're, they're whipping these local teams so badly. Nobody wants to play those second games or those third games. And Posey said, yeah, well, they're getting beat, but look at all the money they're making. They're, they will they will play us, and I guess they did. <laughs> the Grays never the Grays never wanted for someone to, to uh, play on the field, that's for sure. Now, the Grays were an independent team for a long time, but in 1931, the East-West League was created. Uh, what was that, and what was Posey's role? The Grays were independent until 1929, and Posey... Very surprisingly, um, got got them into a new league in 1929, the American Negro League, which only lasted one season. I mean, it was not a very good time to launch a league. You're you're depression bound here, so they did play league ball in 29, and then the East base league baseball in the East collapsed in the 30s in 1930. They then went back to playing independent ball, and by then, a lot of people consider the teams the Grays had in 1930 and 31 to have been the best among the best black teams ever put on the field, even though they were not in the league. But then, practically, no one else in the East was in the league either. So they played they played top level uh, 
opponents. They just didn't have a financially viable league to play in. In 1932, Posey, and this is, he rarely admitted he made a mistake, at least not in public. He did allow later on, 1932 was probably a, not a very good year to launch a new league, but he did so anyway. The East-West League, it lasted until July, and it, it collapsed. It was just probably the worst idea he ever had. Um, then in 1933, another Pittsburgh baseball uh, executive, uh, William Gus Greenlee became, who became a great Posey opponent in the following years, put together a new league and Posey and the Grays joined that. The Grays joined that, and then they got kicked out because they raided another team for players. Or everybody had everybody had a version of this deal of this of dispute. It was sort of like if the the league said to Posey, you're fired, and Posey said, you can't fire me, I just quit. So, but then they were allowed, by 35, they were back in the Negro National League, and then by 37, they were dominating it. So his, his, he wanted to be in a league when, when he wanted to be in a league, and he didn't, the interesting thing was that when they weren't in a league, they got along pretty well, although I think he saw as, as the local baseball base deteriorated, if you wanted to be, if you want to consistently make money, you'd better, after the Depression, you'd better be in a league. And so he was. Now, you mentioned Gus Greenlee and the Pittsburgh Crawfords. How did they interact with each other? Were the teams rivals? Did they compete for players? The teams were rivals. They competed for players. And Greenlee was... Uh, Greenlee was the king of the numbers gambling business in Black Pittsburgh, which is now known as the State Lottery. People people think, oh, they were racketeers. And I say, well, you know, what they did is was been legalized decades ago. Uh, it can't have been that big a crime. Greenlee had uh, he was a showman. He he had a he had an entertainment. Uh, business he had a he had a very popular bar and nightclub on uh, Wiley Avenue in in Pittsburgh he backed uh, professional prize fighters including John Henry Lewis who was a middleweight champion uh, of the United States for a while and he decided to get into baseball and he there was this great semi pro team called the Pittsburgh Crawfords and they were, you know, kind of struggling along, and you can't say he bought them because they weren't exactly for sale. But he he became their bankroller, and then pretty soon he did control the team, and then pretty soon he did own the team. And he did what Posey did over what Posey did over a period of a few of several years. Greenlee did in two. He told he he went out and hired the best players he could find and told the local the local heroes from now on we're a full-time team if you if you don't want to do that you got to go and they almost all left and at the same time Posey's hit badly by the depression he's he's running out of money so a lot of his best players went to the Crawfords including Oscar Charleston and Josh Gibson who were both members of, of uh, 
the Baseball Hall of Fame. He had a great team, and, and he lost them. He lost most of them through not basically not being able to pay them. So Greenlee is now on top. Greenlee even built his own ballpark in the Wiley Avenue section on the hill there in Pittsburgh. 10,000 seat of 10,000 people. He didn't have to pay uh, a percentage of the gate to the Pirates at Forbes Field, for example. And Greenlee was uh, chugging right along. So, so green. So, so the Crawfords were on top there around 1935, and the uh, Grays were just hanging on. You've mentioned but that changed. You've mentioned <laughs> some of the players who uh, were with the the Grays over the years, and uh, certainly if you you can go through a list, and some of the most significant players uh, in Negro Leagues baseball were on that team at at some point, even for a short period of time. Let's talk about a few of those. One of them was Joe Williams. He was a pitcher. Who who was he? Smokey Joe Williams is either considered to be either the first or second best black pitcher, I mean, pre-integration black pitcher ever, depending on how you rate him against Satchel Page. So I, some people say Williams was better than Page. Some people say Page was better than Williams. At any rate, they're up there at the top. Yeah, Williams was mostly around New York City, and he sort of – he. He was getting kind of long in the tooth. He was in his late 30s, in the late 20s, and Posey picked him up, and he was going to be uh, the field manager. Posey was ready to hang up the uniform, and uh, but that didn't that didn't work out. Posey stayed on as the field manager. Williams became the team captain, sort of the assistant manager. And he played for the Grays for several years, and he he sort of was the team, you know, the player team leader of the team. He turned out to have a lot of good years left in his arm. He was not washed up as a pitcher, as his previous employers in uh, the New York City had thought. He became very close with Posey. In fact, when he finally retired, and he was well over 40 when he hung it up, he went back to New York City and uh, ran a bar. And he was sort of a scout. He'd he'd, he'd pass on tips uh, to Posey and other owners of of what he saw and what he thought of the young players in New York. And one of the guys playing for a uh, me sort of a middling team in in Brooklyn was a guy named Buck Leonard, who was first baseman, and Posey and uh, Williams rather said to him, you know, you sh- you're good enough. You could be with a really good team. You know, you think so? Yeah. Let me call my friend Cumberland Posey and see if I can get you a tryout. Well, he called Posey, got him a tryout, and uh, Leonard spent about 15 years with the Grays and uh, easily made it into the Baseball Hall of Fame, one of the best players they ever had. So w- Williams continued to be a valuable well past his pitching days for Posey. Now, another player and one that you mentioned a little bit ago was Oscar Charleston. Who was he? Charleston is probably, I mean, this is all, when you get to this level, it's kind of subjective. I think Charleston was probably the best non-pitching player ever to play in Negro Leagues. He was a power hitting, high average hitting until he, 
at least when he was young, he had a lot of foot speed. He was a center fielder. He got a little older and kind of thickened the waist and became uh, a first baseman, an excellent fielding first baseman. He was a manager of uh, several teams, including the Grays, uh, that early 30s uh, boom time for him. So he yes he played he played for the Grays he went to he jumped to the Crawfords I mean Crump Posey couldn't pay him and didn't really try to stop him but yeah Charleston was there of course Josh Gibson was there Ray Brown who was really one of the better pitchers ever in the Negro Leagues is the Hall of, he got in the same batch in 2006 uh, that saw Posey get in the Hall of Fame. Brown was also uh, Brown was a great pitcher. Brown was also his Posey's son-in-law. He uh, he roomed at the Posey house, as did a lot of other players in the summer. Fell in love with Posey's oldest daughter Ethel and married her. So he's he has a special place in the uh, Gray's history as both Posey's perhaps the best pitcher he ever had, and also his son-in-law. Uh, another player uh, that was on the team was Cool Papa Bell. Yes, Bell came. Bell was first with the, the Grays in, the, in 1932 for the East-West League and left after the league went belly up. He uh, it was the first, also the first time that the Grays couldn't necessarily always meet payroll, so he left. He came back in the 40s during the war, and when a lot of the good players were being drafted, Posey had this great eye for talent. He really did. I mean, he was, he didn't just like cast the net as wide as he could and drag in all these players and sort them out. He, he knew who he wanted. And if he could get them, he would get them. So Bell comes back in the 40s, and he's, he was the premier center fielder in his day. But now we're not quite in his day anymore. He's now moved over to the left field where you don't have to cover quite so much ground. But um, he can still hit. He's a 300-plus hitter, and he played for the Grays throughout World War II uh, and played a key role for him in the last three or four of their pennant-winning years. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about World War II. How did the coming of the war affect affect uh, the African-American baseball teams? The coming of the war was... It's, it's interesting because the difference between... What happened to the white majors and the black majors was startling. The white majors suffered severe financial problems. People just stopped, did not go to the games as much as they did. And then attendance dropped, profits dropped. Black teams had an entirely different experience because this had happened around in World War One too. But the, um, the industries and businesses in the north put themselves on a war footing and there's now making you know military supplies and military equipment and doing all of this support work uh, for the military and there's jobs galore and the blacks left the south there are two great migrations one around 1917 and 18 and one at the beginning of the 1940s, blacks left farms or low-paying jobs in the South and came north to work in, in defense industries. So all of a sudden, and at the same time in World War II, you've got 
travel limitations. Gasoline is rationed. Tires are rationed. You can't, you got all these new people in town and they can't really go anywhere. But you can go to the ball game. You go to the Negro League ball games and Negro Leagues made, again, we don't, you know, we don't have balance sheets or anything. We have a few, but not many. They made money hand over fist. It was, it was unexpectedly, if you, if you think of it as a, as a piece of the overall economy, you'd say, well, how could they do so well? Well, they had a, they had all these new fans with nowhere else to go but to go to the ball game. And even though a lot of the best young players were in the military, there was still plenty of guys like Bell around to put on a good show. And the Negro Leagues made a lot of money during the war, which, of course, the, the spigot uh, was shut right off after the war <laughs> as a, uh, as integration happened and the new and the black leagues became less popular, even among black fans who wanted to see the Jackie Robinson's play, that was the real deal. But um, the world, the early forties were the were the real financially golden age for the Negro leagues. Now Posey wrote a column for the Pittsburgh Courier for a long time, uh, around the nineteen twenties into the, into nineteen forty five. What did you learn did. from reading those columns? Well, it's a lot of the owners. There, there. Several of the owners of the Negro Leagues are probably worthy of books, and books have been written about them, in the most part. But it's very hard to know what they thought. They weren't. A lot of them weren't really public personas. They were kind of laid-back people, and. The black papers were weeklies. You know, the sports writers are going to spend their time writing about the players. They're not going to spend much time interviewing the uh, the owners. Posey had this platform. He wrote this column, so you know, it's sort of like it's sort of like in uh, in retrospect, it's sort of like being able to interview him. Of course. It's an, these are interviews in which he 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 made up the questions, so <laughs> you can't ask him the tough questions, maybe. But he's he's writing about sports. He he had three basic um, points of view or, or approaches. He did he wrote a lot about the history of sports, both baseball and basketball, in which he'd been deeply involved in the twenties, and um, he would just. So there's a lot of history, things he remembered, and he probably remembered them pretty accurately. He just he just throw in a lot of information about what's happening in like black college sports too, because he was he was a football. I mean, one of his was weekend things. He was a football official for the for the black uh, black colleges in in uh, the Pittsburgh or greater beyond Pittsburgh that area of the of the nation. And his other one was, this is what all my fellow owners are doing wrong. He was a constant critic. And he was not always wrong. I mean, I'm not saying he was constantly, I'm not saying he was just looking for things to complain about. He frequently was, he was frequently right when he was uh, criticizing them. So there's a lot of Posey columns. Some some years he wrote a lot. I think it probably depended on what else, whatever else he was doing, it kept him busy. And some years he didn't write so many. But 
there's a collection of several hundred of them over the years, and a lot of them really will tell you what was going on, what had gone on 20 years previously in some of these sports, his history things, what was going on now, and what he thought should be done different. You don't have that. There's only one other Negro League owner, Ethel Manley of the Newark Eagles, who wrote a lot of letters which were preserved because the Eagle team files are one of the few repositories uh, of business papers for these teams that survived. So you can you can plumb Epa's letters and find out pretty much what she thought, but they were private letters for the most part. Posey's just laying it all out there in the pages of the Courier every every week or every couple of weeks whenever he got around to writing his columns, I guess. Now, the uh, the Grays would eventually adopt Washington, D.C. as a second home, and yes. um, they would play in a stadium, Griffith Stadium, named after Clark Griffith, who owned the Washington Senators. What was Posey's relationship with Griffith? I think strictly a business relationship. It's sort of like the relationship he had with the Dreyfus family in Pittsburgh, where, you know, the thing with a major league ballpark is – you think of them as you think about them as game on game days, but there's only so many of those, and the rest of the time, they're sitting around empty. And if you had a if you borrowed money to build that ballpark, you're still paying the mortgage. If you you're paying the electric bill, you're paying the water bill, or whatever. You're paying the property taxes, which are probably enormous. So anything you can do to populate that park and make some money um, when your team is on the road is a good thing. And a lot of the major league parks were, were used at least some of the time by black teams. And if you could, if you could forge a relationship with the major league parks owner to use it a lot as the Posey did uh, with Forbes field in Pittsburgh and Griffith stadium in Washington, it, it was beneficial to both, both parties. Uh, and Pittsburgh, I mean, business was never bad in Pittsburgh, but Pittsburgh didn't have a, at the time, an enormous African-American population. So it was kind of leveled off. But here we have the war again. Washington, D.C. exploded with wartime jobs, not necessarily manufacturing jobs, but government jobs. And a lot of of blacks came for those jobs. So all of a sudden, you've got this big fan base, potential fan base. And Posey cut the deal with Calvin Griffith that he cut with the, the Dreyfus family in Pittsburgh. I'll use your park when you're not using it. I'll pay you probably 25 or 30% of gate receipts for the use of your park, rent your park. And We'll all be happy. Well, they made lots of money in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. was a masterstroke of Posey and his business partner by then, Rufus Jackson. They were champions. They were in a, a, a new place where a lot of people wanted to see baseball, and it all worked out. Now, in the 1940s, uh, Branch Rickey began implementing a plan to integrate Major League Baseball. How did, how did Composey uh, respond to that? Well, the owners were in a tough spot. They were not, and I think Posey was not opposed to integration. Uh, 
but what was going to happen to their businesses? You know, they, they were in a tough spot. They had, they, they certainly couldn't, whatever they thought about integration, they could, certainly couldn't be against it publicly, but they had to try to do something to preserve their livelihoods rather than having the rug yanked out from under them, which is of course what happened in the end. It was a very fine line to cross, to walk and pose. The, you just couldn't, you just couldn't, you would have to be a master diplomat to stay on the right side of everybody. And, and Posey was good at it, but he wasn't that good. He he drew some criticism at the end for not being sufficiently in favor of integration. Um, but I don't think he was against it. But he said, look, you know, in his columns, he said, look, we've, we've invested our lives in these businesses. What's going to happen? We're no, we're not a fa- we're not a, we're not opposed to baseball integrating. But what's going to happen to us? Well. In the end, as it turned out, the white owners were happy to take the best black players, and they had absolutely no interest in doing business with the black owners. I think Posey might have been one who would have crossed over. There were some who did. He had so many connections. He was so canny. He was so good at what he did. Unfortunately, he died of cancer in March of 1946 before we could ever find out how that story was going to work out. I think he could have been one uh, of the small minority of owners who transitioned. Of course, he would not have been an owner. He would have perhaps been a scout or an executive. And whether or not he could have ever worked for anybody else and taken orders from anybody else is another good question. But, you know, of course, we don't know the answer and we'll, we'll never know. So how long did the Grays last after he passed away? They, uh, I believe, they went out of business in 1950. His brother, his older brother, Seward, C. Posey, and Rufus Jackson, who had been Cumberland Posey's business partner, ran the team for a few years. But the year uh, the, the Negro National League that they were in folded in 1948 after the 48 season. I think they lasted until about 1950 as an independent team, but then they gave it up. I mean, Seward, uh, Jackson died, and C. Posey folded the thing, and then he died a few years after that. So they weren't uh, most most of the Negro League teams were either defunct or reduced to shadows of their former selves by the early 50s. Well, we are out of time. Uh, I've been joined by James Overmeyer. He is the author of the book Composy of the Homestead Grays, a biography of the Negro League's owner and Hall of Famer. Jim, thank you for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure. Good to talk to you. To find more PA Books episodes and other programs produced by the Pennsylvania Cable Network, visit PCNTV.com or download the PCN app. I'm Phil Beckman. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.